Welcome to the Connected Insurance Podcast, presented by Agency Revolution. Listen to interviews with the most influential people in the insurance industry. Learn the most important strategies, tactics, trends, and challenges facing today's independent insurance agents and brokers. New episodes every Wednesday. Visit agencyrevolution.com and click media to explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers. Subscribe today and get updates delivered right to your inbox. And now, without further delay, the Connected Insurance Podcast. Hello, everybody. This is Michael Jans, and I am delighted to be your podcast host for the Connected Insurance Podcast presented by Agency Revolution, creators of the most powerful marketing and communication software built specifically to meet the needs of insurance agencies and brokerages. If you believe that the relationship you have with your clients is the heart of your business, and I suspect that you do, if you've been on this ride with me, then you need to see how Agency Revolution can make those relationships stronger and longer. If you haven't done it lately, visit agencyrevolution.com and receive a free demo of their award-winning software today. And today's podcast, my guest is a repeat conversation because, well, let's face it, I've been doing this for three and a half years, and um, we've really gone beyond the point where I'm just going to you know, uh, uh, have the occasional guest one time and give you a blip of insight on what's happening in that part of the world. In this case, we're dealing with a technology that will have substantial impact on the insurance industry and substantial impact on your agency. And while this is not uh, one of the uh, tactical podcasts where, like, I'm going to give you seven things you can do by Tuesday to get more Facebook likes, blah. <laughs> uh, what we do is we kind of go from the, uh, the, the window in the train car where it seems like everything is zipping by really fast and we get our, our uh, guest takes us up to the front. We look out the front window and we can say, look out there. This is where your industry's going. Dan Fagella is uh, the f uh, founder and head of research uh, at Emerge Artificial Intelligence Research. He's called upon by organizations like the World Bank, the United Nations, Interpol, and as clients, a number of major global insurance carriers. So uh, you're in for a treat. This is a really, really good conversation. And I suspect you're going to be thinking about it um, for a few weeks. And you'll be wondering, hmm, what do I need to do strategically? Well, he gives some answers to that, and I, uh, I really think he's uh, spot on. Uh, I have, uh, well, a uh, couple, of, couple of other things that I want to say. A as uh, you're probably aware, in the last week or two, I may have made a reference to the fact that my wife and I have had a visitor. Sir COVID uh, knocked on our front door remarkably out here in uh, the fairly remote foothills of the Sonoran Desert, he found me. Um, and so I'll keep this short, but there are a couple things that I want to say. Number one is you deserve to know that, um, uh, how shall I put this? Uh, uh, I, I think we're beyond the point where there's a medical crisis. And I couldn't say that. A couple of weeks ago, there was no way I could have said that. Um, that said, uh, I don't want to give you the impression that when COVID knocks on your door, it's necessarily going to be a short visit. Today marks one month, the one month uh, anniversary, so to speak, uh, of when uh, Teresa said to me, Michael, I don't feel so hot. I'm going to go lay down. Uh, and that was the beginning of a descent. And then about four days later, that's when my symptoms began to kick in. Uh, but the good news is um, while... 
he's not gone. <laughs> he's not gone. Uh, I wake up to Sir COVID every single morning, and, and frankly, two or three times a night. And the only time I feel like I don't have COVID is when um, um, in my swimming pool, and even then, that's pretty gentle. Uh, Teresa's recovery is uh, taking, I, I suspect, will take longer than mine. Um, but I say uh, give us a month, and we're probably going to be dandy. And that's a hope. Uh, but overall, it's good news. The other thing I want to say is um, thank you. For those of you who had the opportunity to reach out to me, a lot of people did uh, on LinkedIn or email, michael at michaeljans.com. Uh, my clients, uh, many of them had my uh, cell phone and texted me. The kindness and the support, um, well, it was overwhelming. Uh, I know that over 5,000 people viewed my video on uh, LinkedIn and or other platforms and hundreds of people have reached out to me personally and I've made a commitment. Uh, I'm going to try and I think I'm almost there um, to uh, personally thank every single person who took the time to do that. It means a lot to me. Some people reached out to me and said, Michael, uh, I listen to your show every week and I feel like you're a friend. Um, oddly, I, I know that I, I really don't talk much about myself. I really kind of I show up and uh, I'm here to do the job. So I get into the conversation and I do the job. I think I do a pretty decent job because one, I care. Two, I'm a super curious guy. Uh, three, I know this industry like inside and out. And so I think I can have a really good conversation. And I always have in mind that that really the conversation is for you. And so I want to listen for you. But I, I generally don't talk much about myself, and I'm not, not going to do it today. I uh, simply want to say that, uh, one, if you want to have some sense of what the experience of COVID is like, you might want to visit my LinkedIn profile, and you'll find my activity, and you'll see a video. A lot of people have. And number two, um, well, uh, yeah, once again, uh, your kindness means the world to me, and I want to say thank you. So, uh, that said, let's rock and roll. Let's buckle up and have a good conversation with my guest, Dan Fagella. Dan Fagella, thanks so much for joining us again. Michael, I am glad to be here. All right. Um, so, well, first of all, this is round two. And I suspect it, might, may, uh, it probably shouldn't be the last conversation because it's an important conversation. So as the, as the months and years pass by, I'm sure we're going to be revisiting this. Y you are one of the thought leaders uh, in the category of artificial intelligence. But I think perhaps uh, you should explain. For, first of all, tell us a little bit about how you got to be that guy. And yeah. Uh, yeah, and then we'll talk about what AI is and how it really affects the insurance industry and the insurance agent. Sure. Yeah. So I'll, I'll tell you right now, I, I definitely wasn't in college saying I'm I'm going to develop a tremendous expertise for AI and insurance. But Michael, hey, life happens, right? So um, I uh, I do I do happen to really like insurance now because I've gotten my hands dirty. And the way it really <laughs> went down yeah. was huh, back in you know I got out of graduate school in. 2011, I, I did the Ivy League thing at UPenn. I studied skill development, skill acquisition, which kind of roughly is sort of the mm. actual neuroscience upon which machine learning is roughly 
correlative. Indeed. So um, while I was at grad school, there were kind of the rustles and the breeze about where this machine learning, this new machine learning thing was coming. And, you know, the beginnings of AI for, for vision and for natural language processing were sort of starting in the academic circles at that time. And I, I really became convinced that this was going to be so uh, powerful in terms of stretching these capabilities forward, what they would look like, you know, 10 years in the future. Now we're almost 10 years in the future, which is kind of scary to say. But as far back as 2012, Michael, I had no business model in mind. I had no real business idea in mind. I was running um, a martial arts gym, which is how I paid for school. I trained mixed martial arts. Oh, that's right. Big cauliflower ears here. Uh, <laughs> a, lot of, a, lot of, a lot of fighting. And so I was doing that to, to you know, pay for my school debt and, and cover my rent and everything. But, uh, but I began a lot of interviews with academic AI people. And then I started getting more and more into people applying this in business, really understanding what it took to you know, get these technologies working in the real world. This is way back, again, 2012, 2013. There was very little action in this space. But as it turns out, there was a bit of an audience. So we built this little seed of an audience by 2014 of the rare group of people that wanted to see where is this stuff moving in business. And I tended to focus on finance because I found it to be fascinating. You know, insurance is the mm -hmm. original big data business. Uh, you know, using statistical methods to make important business decisions is really a kind of a, a tantamount insurance capability, and machine learning is just the next level of that. So we built an audience around where AI is taking the future of finance, banking, insurance, uh, as well as defense and security. And at, when we developed into a market research firm and started actually offering advisory and offering data and offering kind of strategic services, um, it became insurance and banking firms who were our clients. So that's the, that's the roundabout story. It began with fascination, and it turned into practical business and you know, insurance and banking. All right. I want to start with the simple questions. You've used the term AI and machine learning. Can you yes. yeah, give us a definition? Sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to give you a kind of high level. Um, I normally would advise business people not to get too hung up on this. It Fair should be known that even hardcore academics, and we've spoken to some of the very godfathers of this science, Stuart Russell and Yashua Bengio and these people have all been on the, the program here, and even they're not on the exact same page about definitions. But I'll give you the rough ones that we use, and I think they're very useful for a practical understanding. Mm -hmm. For artificial intelligence, this is a broad bucket underneath, roughly, computer science, which is essentially the ability for a, a machine, a computer, to do something that previously only a human being could. Now, you'll notice it's a very fuzzy definition. That doesn't necessarily have to involve the latest and greatest deep learning statistical methods that could actually involve some kind of an if-then set of rules. Um, the old expert systems of AI back in the 80s, for example, I, I think should still be referred to as artificial intelligence. But, uh, but that's, that's roughly what we would refer to as artificial intelligence. Very big bucket, machines doing things otherwise people would have to. Um, machine learning is m a much more narrow space. Machine learning is, roughly speaking, the ability to use data to train, for, for lack of a better analogy, a set of nodes to essentially uh, understand and represent patterns. So th this set of nodes could be uh, trained on a million fraudulent claims uh, requests, for uh -huh. example. Or yeah. it could be trained on millions and millions of uh, fender bender photographs, along with the price to fix those fender benders, uh, for example. So that mm -hmm. when we throw it some new data, it's able to then come up with estimates um, as good and, and hopefully vastly better than human beings with a astronomically better speed. Um, and so roughly that's machine learning. It's a particular kind of machines doing things people would otherwise have to do. Okay, and I think that uh, you'd indicated that 
um, that it's possible that machines can deliver a better answer than humans can. That that is indeed that is indeed the case in some domains. So okay. yeah, there's there's certain spaces where uh, safe to say ML is going to do a better job than people and a faster job than people. There's other spaces, Michael, where ML is just going to simply help human beings make better decisions themselves. In other words, it's not going to pull the trigger. It's simply going to help flag and channel human attention to make those distinctions and final decisions itself. So it's not necessarily a full handoff. Sometimes it's an augmentation. Um, it really depends on the use case, and we can talk about as many of those as you want. Okay. Um, well, let's do one thing first. I want to bring this like right down to the ground, and then let's go back up to the 30,000-foot view, okay? Yeah. <laughs> at, well, at the ground level, what I would like to ask is, why should my audience comprised primarily of insurance agency principals listen to this conversation about artificial intelligence and machine learning? Yeah, I think there's a few uh, big reasons why this could be helpful. Um, one is that there's going to be a lot of buzzwords flying around their space and a lot of kind of hoopla around technology, and it would behoove them to know maybe what bits of that might be worth their attention and which bits they, they maybe can pay less attention to. Uh, Some of this is really going to yeah. only be enterprise relevant. So that's, oh, okay. Um, okay. Okay. Got it. So that's, so that is, uh, that's one of my objectives. Okay. And that's one of our objectives for this conversation is, is to, um, is, is to separate the wheat from the chaff, give people enough understanding what's happening in this category of, um, emerging technology so that they can, um, be smart, be wise, uh, and not be distracted. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. Understand enough of the lay of the land so that new buzzwords don't have to grasp their attention. They can kind of know where they fit conceptually and sort of go on with their work if it's not necessarily relevant. I think that there's going to be so much hoopla around this in the next five years that the folks that kind of get it will, will just have a better uh, set of kind of relevant antennas. And uh, I think for your audience, that'll be undeniably useful as this technology creeps into their space. Okay. So you, you just used the term five years that's that's not a lot of time are you anticipating that ai will have real measurable impacts on our industry in the next five years oh for sure okay um, so across insurance broadly now for each of your individual you know uh listeners for mm -hmm. example to, to necessarily say that they'll all be affected you know to the same degree in five years would, would be false but um but to say that insurance is going to change in terms of um, some of the ways it operates and some of the efficiencies it can gain and some of the places where uh, human abilities versus machine abilities become more or less relevant. Those shifts are, uh, those tectonic plates are beginning to move now. Uh, five years from now, there will have been shifts um, that are really kind of defining. Um, whether or not that's going to affect every guy with a briefcase who sells you know, life insurance in Wisconsin. <laughs> a little bit up in the air. Okay. okay, let's drop that stereotype. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, yeah, well, Chicago. It doesn't matter to me, okay. right? I mean, you know, I bought insurance from, from folks. I, yeah. you know, bought it online. All right. I'm trying to get up to work. Um, oh, okay, so, uh, so that now becomes another objective. Is, is I, I want to get some sense of what those tectonic shifts are going to look like, because I, I think what you're saying is that the industry level, at the carrier level, um, there will be um, measurable, maybe dramatic shifts. And, 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 and I'm assuming, Dan, that the, the larger carriers are investing directly in artificial intelligence and machine learning right now. Is that safe that to say? That is definitely the case. Okay, yeah. got if, it. If you, if 
you went to emer- so if you yeah. went to emerge.com, you you would see like progressive all state. You know, we we've, we've got kind of lists of mm-hmm. the known investments of all the big players. Ah, um, so okay. Get a sense of what they're doing so, on your on your yeah. website, emerge.com. Yeah, e m e r j dot com. Right on. Literally type any of the main players into the search bar, uh-huh. you're going to be able to see their investments, how far along they are. Often these are quite nascent, right? So I'm never going to toot the horn of a project as if it's farther along than it is. A lot of these are simply initiatives or simply stated goals. Some of them have some clear traction. Some of them are just starting. But, yes, it is, it is primarily the big five you know, U.S. insurance <laughs> players who are investing the most directly in terms of hiring talent and in terms of developing these capabilities uh, in-house and with vendors. That strikes me as a distinct advantage for them and a disadvantage for the smaller and regional carriers. That is, you know, I, I wish I could tell you I didn't agree with you, but I, I definitely do. I think that um, now if if they adopt and deploy AI in a really mishapped, uh, fumbled way, then they may waste enough money doing it to the point where it doesn't actually garner them a grand advantage. But if they can do it well, then yes, indeed, uh, that could help to spin the flywheel of them just being able to eat up the little guys. Um, and that, that is a consideration for the longer term. Now, five years from now, do I think that that's going to be like, uh, you know, it's going to be like Rockefeller Standard Oil, like eating everybody. Like, I don't necessarily think we're going to get there, but I will say that the dynamics mm-hmm. will play in favor of those with the most R&D budget, with the most data volumes, with the most in-house talent and ability to deploy these technologies. The big guys have to really... Um, modernize in many ways to get there, but I do think that if they get there much farther than the mid-sized players, the mid-sized players will have much less of a chance mm-hmm. in the years following. Got it. Okay. Uh, so if an insurance agency principal were fortunate enough to go eyeball to eyeball with the CEO of a major insurance carrier and had an opportunity to ask them what do your investments in AI mean to me? What, what, well, I guess what I'm really wanna, I really want to ask is what questions should they ask them? Yeah. You mean, so you say what should an insurance principal ask sort of uh, the big carriers? Yeah. Which are they, yeah if, so, so carriers are making an investment in, in industry-changing technologies. <clears throat> yeah. At some point, I mean, there, there's obviously a significant trickle, trickle-down effect. What what is an insurance? What should an insurance agency principal ask their carriers about their AI investments and what that means to them? Yeah, well, uh, so there's a lot of uh, factors in what you're saying here. I'll, I'll bring mm-hmm. up a few of them. So this is a really good question. Um, one one thing that I should note is that a lot of where the investments are going today. So we you know, our, our our flagship research is called the AI Opportunity Landscape. It's basically looking at all the known investments of the global top twenty insurance firms, as well as something to the tune of 70-some-odd AI vendors uh, in the insurance space. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you right now that something like 70% of all money being invested in artificial intelligence um, in major insurance firms Mm -hmm. is either in underwriting um, or or in claims in some way, shape, or form. And and how Um, do you, you, so how will that transform the industry? Yeah, well, for an agent, you're talking about agencies, right? Well, ultimately, right. yeah, when, when I hear agencies being that that's your audience, um, I presume, and Michael, I'm, I'll need your clarity here, I don't do as much work with agencies individually. We tend not. to work with more of the you know, multi-billion dollar firms. But um, the agencies, primarily from what I understand, they um, have relationships with businesses. You know, They handle sales. They maybe handle some of the high-touch stuff around claims a little bit. Mm-hmm. But 
a lot of that stuff happens at the mothership, you know, mm-hmm. whatever the big insurance firm is. So from what I understand, it's a little bit more of kind of a, a marketing sales relationship organization at the agency level. I just mm-hmm. want to make sure that, that that is the right lens to think through when I give you my answer. Yeah, good enough for now. Okay, good enough for now. So, um, yeah, so a lot of the claims and underwriting stuff is is not necessarily going to be tackled by or really all that thoroughly referenced by um, the, the agents. I mean, they, they may see sort of policy criterion, you know, shift and, and alter a bit, you know, based on like what they can quote for what, because the, you know, whoever they're working for, Allstate or whoever, has, has been able to change algorithmically the way that they gauge risk on this kind of commercial deal or this kind of life insurance or, or whatever. But, but that's probably beyond the pale of the, the agency themselves. Um, the things that uh, may become more and more relevant for agencies moving forward is around the customer experience. Uh, okay. Um, well, I was going to ask you, based, based on what you just said, the real question is, how does this affect the customer? Because that's, that's where the real traction is uh, for the independent agent, is their relationship with the customer base. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, and, 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 and if they're representing carriers who have you know, potentially had some transformative uh, experience with, with AI, what can they expect? Um, so tell me about the customer experience. Yeah, yeah, the customer experience. So um, when I say customer experience in this particular regard, I'm talking a little bit more about acquisition um, and, okay. uh, uh-huh. and sort of getting new customers in the door. So how customers are treated on a day-to-day, I'm not exactly sure how that's going to alter. You know, when artificial intelligence can be used to detect claims fraud, Again, like, I don't exactly know how the customer's experience, it's probably not very different. It's just they get called out for fraud more <laughs> frequently if the AI system does it well. So that's not as transformative there. Um, underwriting the customer experience would be faster. So here's a trend that's extremely relevant. And this is, so I'm going to bring up three very quick points, Michael, that okay. I think are relevant for an agency owner mm-hmm. um, in terms of tracking the future. And you can let me know which one you'd like to poke into. I just want to give you a bit of a splay here. So, Taking notes. Um, again, we've gone really, really deep into this uh, insurance space <clears throat> and the landscape, so I can go whatever direction you want. Here All right, go. I'm taking notes. Um, the first, okay, great. Um, the, the first is around um, uh, the, the fact that sort of underwriting is, is, is going to be moving more and more towards really thoroughly streamlining and as much as possible automating the what we could call kind of low-cost, high-volume underwriting type tasks. So auto insurance, uh, you know, maybe mm-hmm. home insurance, maybe mm-hmm. in some cases life insurance. Um, you know, things. If we're if we're looking if we're looking to insure, you know, a salt mine somewhere, that's a little bit of a hands-on deal, right? We don't have an algorithm with four million salt mines. Right on. Um, so so we're not going to have a great gauge on that. And even if we did, the number of features and factors involved in risks of a salt mine is, is so much astronomically more complicated than, you know, a Corvette for a 32-year-old guy. Um, so uh, so h- high-volume, relatively low-cost um, items are going to be more and more swiftly handled on the underwriting side, and some of that is going to be translating more and more uh, to, to just being able to be handled online, or vast amounts of that being able to be, to ah, be handled online okay. in the first place. So the low-hanging fruit is, is is really going to become less and less less and less of a safe space um, for for agencies to hang out in. Um, and again, this is more. This will be more relevant in tech heavy cities. This will be more relevant for people, you know, who are going to be in business for a longer period of time as the old folks 
sort of, mm-hmm. you know, fade a little bit more out of the market, and millennials and, and younger people who are used to digital become more and more of the client base. All right, Dan, uh, this, remi- this reminds me of a conclusion that you shared in our last conversation. So I'm going back, I don't know how long has it been, a year, year and a half? Maybe a year, yeah, it's been a while. Okay, it's been a while. Uh, and, and I think in that conversation, one, one of your suggestions, uh, a strategic suggestion, was again depending on your strategic horizon, right? So if you're if you're retiring now or in the next you know few years, don't worry about it. But if you're if you're in business a little bit longer, you've got a longer horizon. Lean up market. Yep, lean up market. And I and I, I think and I think you're citing uh, two sort of uh, the confluence of two converging forces. Uh, one, uh, AI will uh, simplify and expedite the process. Two, there is a growing generation um, that has, uh, you know, probably uh, a, a comfort with that model, right? Yeah, yeah. So, 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 right. so, so they'll have comfort more, more and more comfort with uh, online relationships. One hundred percent. Okay, yeah. got and, it. And All I right. I think that that is a, that is a confluence of two factors. Confluence is also like a fifty cent word. So, high five. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I, 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 like, I, I like confluence a lot. I got uh, I got about six of those, and I keep them on my uh, notepad in front of me for these podcasts. Uh, okay, that's item number one. What's item number two? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, in terms of other things that are relevant, I think it's you know along that second thread of sort of the evolution of customer experience, customer acquisition um, in general, it is sort of uh, staying attuned to how capable conversational systems are. So right now, um, the quote-unquote Erica at Bank of America or, you know, these chatbots and these big financial services firms are extremely not capable. I'm not going to insult any companies. I'm not making fun of anybody's efforts. This is a very, very hard science to crack. Um, But over the course of the next two to three years, as we start to see conversation actually become more more capable, like in other words, uh, we want to follow big tech here. So we want to see like... Microsoft, we want to see Amazon, we want to see Apple, we want to see how far along are they, right? Siri is still pretty dumb, Alexa is still pretty dumb, except for certain things. When we start to see more sort of business-type questions being able to be handled for Apple Pay via a completely automated, you know, chat interface, Mm -hmm. that will be what we could call kind of a canary in the coal mine, that the technology has matured to such a degree that we actually can start to legitimately tackle customer onboarding, and and questions with AI. Right now, it's really important for people to know that if Apple and Google can't do it with chat, frickin' Geico is never going to get there. Just end of story, (laughs) full stop, everybody shut up. Everybody shut up. Like, Geico's not going to get there until Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon are there. They're always going to get there first. So we want to look at our consumer tech and get a sense of how advanced and developed is this, and that's going to be a really nice kind of, again, canary in the coal mine, uh, maybe about a year or 18 months <laughs> after you start to have really uh, relatively complex, robust, legitimate, somewhat complicated customer service stuff really being able to, to succinctly be handled by chat. Then we're going to have to ask ourselves um, when that's going to roll into our business, because that's going to mean another wave of folks who might just be able to go on Geico.com and might be more comfortable, more capable uh, of doing that on their, on their you know, smoke break rather than, you know, meeting with us at a coffee shop or something. Um, okay. <clears throat> so All that, right. that's the one other factor. And I've got, I've got one final one. Yeah, let's hear the final one. Okay. So 
So another final factor here, and, and we do not see this as, a, <laughs> as a currently as, as much of a strategic initiative as we would like to. We work with a great many insurance firms, and primarily their focus is risk, and that's perfectly fine. I completely respect that. I think that over the course of the next two or three years, we're going to see more and more of them focus on the opportunities for revenue when it comes to underwriting, not just the opportunities for reducing risk. Let me tell you what I mean. Yeah. For Gen Z or for some millennials or for new overseas markets um, where we have what we call thin files, that is to say these people don't have like all the different insurance data proxies we would need to price life insurance, to price car insurance, to price whatever. They just don't have enough evidence in the back end when normally a lot of the time that would just mean, okay, like we just don't do business in that bucket or maybe we have kind of a catch-all price in that bucket that's not really efficient, um, with machine learning moving forward, we're going to be able to garner a better sense of new proxies for data. So even if we don't have the data we would love to use our old statistic models, we're going to be able to have some new models based off of different kinds of proxies about these customers, and Lord knows what all those factors will be, but that will help us open up new markets. So now we can price more effectively to markets we weren't even previously serving, and we can start to gobble up market share with products that will actually be profitable by being able to stretch the predictive capability of, uh, of machine learning into new areas for revenue. Not just saying no to more business that's going to be unprofitable, but saying yes to business maybe we wouldn't have touched before, but that actually on the aggregate will be profitable. And so that's a trend that I think um, uh, may fall into the hands of agents because they agents then may be able to start working with kind of different crowds in different markets. Uh -huh. But a lot of those those kind of low-hanging fruit deals for, you know, a Gen Z person with <laughs> car insurance, again, may, may find themselves falling online. So it's going to be interesting to see where that affects agents, but it's a dynamic that I think um, will affect uh, their lives in, in the coming half decade here. Got it. All right. So, uh, Dan, I want to circle back to your number two. You were talking about the evolution of the conversational capacity of AI. Um I, I want to hear a little bit about how you think that may affect um, the insurance industry or agencies, and, and in particular, I'd like your honest opinion about this. Um, yeah. talk, talk to us about, for want of a better word, I think we'd call them chat bots. Okay, so somebody yep. visits, so uh, it's somebody visits a website, and whoever you know, who, whoever they name their chatbot, right, shows up and says, uh, "Hey, um, is there anything I can help you with?" And then it presumably it goes on from there, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, Where's this going? Well, how 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 good is this? Where is this going? Yeah. Well, the answer to how good it is is not great. Okay. Um, so, so you know, the examples that I like in the chatbot space, we've done a couple really, really, really good interviews on uh, with, with exceedingly high-level PhDs who also have a business understanding of this space um, on, uh, on how chatbots work and what they can do, what they can't do. That's a bit of a longer convo. I can send that for the show notes if it's relevant because there's, there's some really square understandings around the, the yes and no versus what, what these things can actually do. But to give you a, a basic understanding here, um, the examples that I like – are like very, very, very tightly bounded realities, this is where chatbots can be possible. Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. We can talk about like a 1-800-Flowers or like a Domino's Pizza, where there's realistically only so many permutations of a chain of text and only so many intentions that you had when you be 
began the conversation in the first place. So let me, I mean? let, let me ask you a, a, um, you know, a, a novice's question, okay, an, yeah. an amateur's question on, on this one. Is, is that artificial intelligence or is that an algorithm programmed by a reasonably intelligent coder? It, it's, it's probably a good deal of both. Okay. So often the way that this works um, is that uh, the machine learning, quote-unquote, mm -hmm. is being used to, for lack of a better term, I'm giving you an extremely simplified uh, answer here, but, but it, it's very useful regardless. Um, the algorithm is determining intent, determining uh, what individual entities are being referenced you know, in the string of text that the user inputs. So it's, it's sort of detecting, okay, what do they want? Um, and you know what are they talking about, and then it'll determine which you know uh, which canned response to draw from. Right. So there's probably a bit of an if-then engine back there, I mean, yeah. almost undeniably. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, there's machine learning being used to determine some context. You know, maybe there's some Midwestern slang saying that they're using to refer to something that, ah. like. Mm -hmm. We had to train an algorithm on to understand. <laughs> oh yeah, they're talking about a fender bender there, or they're talking about something else. You know, um, so. So it's often going to be a combination of, of both. The fact of the matter is, though, Michael, these, these, uh, these chatbots are just not that developed. Financial services chatbots are at large. Um, even 18 months ago were just such a big hype bubble. We were a big part of calling them out and not trying to be mean to anybody, but, but really drawing attention to the extreme limitations of these technologies. Um, and everybody was doing a press release about their chatbots, so everybody thought that that meant they were real. But, you know, six months later, Wells Fargo and Allied <laughs> Bank, all these other players, they don't have one anymore, right? Yeah. And so they, they don't do a chat. They don't do a press release when they cancel the project. You understand, Michael? So um, in the market research world, our job is to say not, not, a, not what are you doing your press releases about, where are you throwing your damn money, and where are you actually seeing a return on investment? That, that involves some heavier lifting. So to answer your question, chatbots, very, very, very tough to actually tackle real deal questions for, let's say, sales onboarding for an insurance product or robust kind of customer service uh, for, for a product. There's going to be an evolution of these technologies over time. But again, in, until we see relatively complicated customer experience questions be able to be tackled by chat or voice through Google, Facebook, Amazon, uh, Apple, mm -hmm. whatever, yeah. um, like it, until we see it there, we cannot ever reasonably expect that Geico is all of a sudden going to jump, you know, jump the whole uh, – you know, kit and caboodle there and, and leap ahead and be able to now tackle a bunch of things that we used to be able to handle as an agent. I think the more capable those systems get, though, the more and more important it is for us to be upmarket with people who don't want to talk to a bot because their needs are so complex, they're so robust, that a relationship and a tremendous amount of context is relevant. Machines are not taking that stuff away anytime soon. Got it. All right. Uh, Dan, I have one. I want to be respectful of your time. Yes. I do have one last question for you. Um. And this one maybe is, uh, <clears throat> well, I'll, I'll let you run with it. Um, clearly, there is a, a shadow side to artificial intelligence. And, and, and I'll, I can break that into a couple of categories. One is AI used for evil intent. And two is AI with the, um, oh, amplifying the built-in, perhaps the biases of the data set that was established by the programmer. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so I'll, I'll, I'll explaining the second one. Um, a topic about which I've got some sensitivity coming from a multiracial family, okay? Um, c clearly, there's f strong evidence that, that AI... Uh, that, that some AI has <clears throat> strong 
appears to be strong biases against non-Caucasian races. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, sure, the the sure. shadow side of AI it seems to be something okay. that, that, that simply as a society, we need to be aware of and find some way to regulate. Yeah, and, and that's, that's a really robust conversation that there's people whose entire careers are focused there. My focus mostly is, you know, serving enterprise clients, making <laughs> yeah, decisions okay. around allocating money. That said, Michael, that doesn't mean that this stuff is off my table, right? Yeah. I, mean, I was called into the United Nations to do the first presentation on deepfakes at UNHQ. Fair we enough. Actually, uh -huh. you talk about uh, malicious uses of AI, um, in more or less the highest circles, we have been a, a reasonable source of truth in this domain. So the same in business. I can go, go on with you. Um, when it comes to sort of the, uh, we, we could call it bias writ large, there's a really broad display of what this actually implies here. So there are some cases where, um, let's say, you know, if we talk about auto lending, which is, which is one example, it's very correlative to, you know, insurance underwriting. Uh, would be, you know, we're taking in a bunch of data, we're determining what are we going to price this thing for you, and are we going to say yes or no to you? Mm -hmm. um, in, in auto lending, there's a lot of regulation around not, you know, using race as a factor, of course. Right. Um, and, and, that, and that makes sense. Um, the, same, the same is the case with, uh, you know, in, in, in insurance, I'm sure there's different regulatory bodies, but, but similar kinds of rules. Um, the things that we're starting to see become relevant are that sometimes algorithms, very rarely, Mike, I'll be really clear about this, and I, I absolutely do not agree with or condone uh, the... the, the um, any, any kind of claim that there is a broad conspiracy amongst developers or programmers to, like, you know, turn the world a certain color. Um, I right. think that that's uh, a vulgar idea. I actually consider it vulgar. Um, but what I will say is that there are real considerations here that we do need to think about. And I think smart and ethical folks in AI are aware of and care about talking about this. And I think that some of the considerations are for, um, you know, we talk about lending. Uh, zip code may be such a close proxy to race in right. some cities or places mm -hmm. that it needs to be excluded from the data. And so if we want to, you know, have an algorithm that we can say doesn't tie to these factors that we want to make sure we align. There's two things here as far as I can tell. We build systems the way that we think about it with clients. We have an article about kind of a framework on this. But we want to think through the law, so the regulatory bodies, and we want to think about our own values. Are we breaking either of those two? And in some cases, there's sneaky kind of side effects of what an algorithm can do, where it'll start to proxy off of demographic, demographic factors that we would have never wanted it to proxy off of in the first place. Right. There's also cases where there may be, let's say, less persons with a certain kind of disability mm. who we have you know, trained an algorithm on, and so maybe they will get less of a nuanced uh, level of service than folks who we have a lot more um, uh, level of trained instances yeah. on, for example. And that may be a factor where they feel underserved, and we may want to ask, how do we want to address this? So what I would say is that many projects, in fact, Michael, I could tell you pretty cold and frankly, most projects will involve very little risk of this. In, in other words, if you're doing document search and discovery, I spent the last four months with a huge BPO firm helping them build out a document search and discovery tool in, in, in the insurance space. Right. Like, we're looking for legal contracts, man, okay? There, there's no, <laughs> there's no, uh, no, no race stuff going on. Got it. Um, the same thing no no with, facial uh, recognition. Yeah, there's no facial recognition. Right? We're, we're, <clears throat> we want documents to show up in a folder, for crying out loud. Yeah. And then there's other instances where maybe we're processing physical invoices and we're turning those into digitized. And in many cases, there won't be these concerns. But when there are, so long as from the planning process, we can ask, hey, 
what does it look like to adhere to the law, and what does it look like to adhere to our values, and how do we build a system that does that, I think that in so doing, we can make sure that we don't have these nefarious effects. So I think it's great we're talking about them. I don't see it as a big looming impact on every single AI project. But broadly speaking, I think that mindset that I just articulated is going to be the best way to address in the business context um, you know, what we should do with this. Got it. All right. Uh, Dan, I know you need to run. I do have one last question for you. Uh, if you could do, just deliver a, uh, a brief message about this topic to the, the people who run the distribution sector of insurance, what would you say? Man, yeah. Well, I, I'm going to reiterate the movement up market for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And I'm going to tell them to really keep a pulse on how the younger folks are starting to make their purchases and handle their customer service. Uh, just, just have a have a sense of where that's moving and where that's shifting, um, because I think that in terms of that initial interaction, yeah. um, you know, who we're able to still target, who we're not, that, that'll, again, you know, not to, to use the idiom too many times here, but um, that'll be the canary in the coal mine in that regard. So I, w- I would just say that's about that. A lot of this stuff they don't have to worry about day to day, but those bits of advice are going to serve them well in the next five years. Ahead. Very good. Thank you. Um, so, Dan, if, if a listener wants to learn more about your firm, how can they do that? Uh, folks who are interested in what we do here at Emerge, we have a tremendous amount of free resources on Emerge.com. Probably the best one for your audience is going to be emerj.com slash INS1. That's just the number one, Emerge.com slash INS1. That's essentially an AI and insurance cheat sheet. We talked today about some of the use cases. That one breaks down, I think, four or five major insurance use cases as well as basic terminology. So if you want to get up to speed quick, that's probably going to be a helpful one. Otherwise, you can just find me on Twitter and LinkedIn and Tell me you heard me through Michael, and I'll be uh, happy to talk to you. All right. Terrific. Thank you, Dan. Um, Well, uh, as always, it's been a great conversation. Really appreciate your contribution. You bet. Hey, thanks so much, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Connected Insurance Podcast. If you found this episode informative, please share it with your peers and colleagues. Explore the Connected Insurance family of resources for insurance agents and brokers by visiting agencyrevolution.com and clicking media. Subscribe and get updates delivered right to your inbox. New episodes every Wednesday.